If you'd open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Father, again, we thank you, Lord, for your kindness and grace, and again, for the word. Father, we ask as we continue to work our way through 2 Corinthians, that, Lord, that you would instruct us as to those things that you would have us to know. Again, reminding us, Lord, that you have preserved every word that's in your word. Preserve all of it for us, that we may gain greater understanding of you, your will, of life, of ourselves, of sin, salvation, sanctification. <laughs> all those things that are pertinent to every aspect of life. So, Father, we approach your, your word with anticipation, with eagerness, and, and a desire to learn. We do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Beginning in verse 12, Paul says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia. And have you sent me on my way to Judea? Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Did I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And that it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. So when you read through that, all we can see is nothing but real, thick theological truth, and we have no doubt as to why that's in Scripture. I don't know about you, I'm like, okay. He was going to come, he didn't come. These are the reasons why he didn't come. Uh, and that's been preserved for hundreds of years in the Word of God for our benefit. What in the world? So let's take a closer look at it. Because <laughs> it's been saved for some reason. For many reasons. And so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to notice, and this is what we're going to do for the most of the morning, is develop what he says in verse 12, where he talks about his conscience. He says the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely or even more so toward you. Our English word conscience is this inner faculty that 
it's kind of strange. It's something that knows with. All right? So my conscience knows with my spirit, or my conscience knows with, I guess, me. And it approves when I do something right, or it is accusing me when I do something wrong. We don't talk about a lot about conscience uh, in really too many different contexts today, uh, but it is brought up here. Professor John Bloom, he used to teach at Dallas Seminary, said this, Conscience is not the law of God, but it bears witness to that law. It is the window that lets in the light. And if the light gets dirty because we disobey, then the light becomes dimmer and dimmer. In Romans 2, beginning in verse 14, it says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Paul uses the word conscience 23 times in his various letters. In Acts 24, he says, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. So now most of the time, we, maybe it's, we hardly ever use the word conscience uh, when speaking about unbelievers because we just don't really think there's too much of a conscience left. When we do talk about the conscience of anyone else, it's normally in the sense of their conscience has been seared with a hot iron. They don't have any. But when it comes to the life of the believer, again, it is spoken about in the Bible. There is this idea here that Paul says he always take, takes great pains to have a clear conscience. So this is an important faculty and function of our lives as Christians. As you and I read the Bible, as we study, as we seek to be led by the Holy Spirit, our conscience is clearly to be informed by the Bible and is to be shaped by the Bible. So it's, it goes beyond just what we think, even though thinking is a very important part of this, but as your heart and my heart is transformed by the word of God, your conscience is going to change. But it's not just something that we don't give any thought to. We are to think about it. We, we want God to develop within us a sensitive conscience. We, we should want to become more sensitive to sin. And that does happen in the lives of, of many believers that are maturing. Sometimes we kind of recognize that, that things that never bothered us before bother us now. Not just things maybe we've done in the past where we didn't feel guilty and now we do, but even, even now as we interact with individuals, there are things that begin to bother us. Now, it doesn't always bother us to the point that we do something about it, and you know we, we probably need to, but, but there is this changing that we are at times aware of. One person said that when a person has a good conscience, he has integrity, not duplicity, and can't be trusted. So as we kind of work our way through this, we do have to ask this question, which we'll deal with just for only for really a, maybe a couple of minutes, because we've mentioned it before, and that is, so why were some of these Corinthians accusing Paul of deception and carelessness? It really was over a very simple thing. Now, it was because they don't like Paul. And, they, and, and some of them don't like Paul. They don't like the authority that he has. And they don't like what he says and the way he says things. But he had been forced to change his plans. 
He had promised them before that he was going to come and spend the winter. He did say, if the Lord permits, he would do that. That was in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. He wanted to come and gather the offerings that the Corinthians had collected for the poor Jewish believers and give the church the privilege of sending him and his associates on the way to Jerusalem. And there was a change in plans. Paul regretted that. Some will say in the, in the commentaries that he was embarrassed about that. I, I think that might be an overreach. I don't think he's embarrassed by this. But he was accused of some things that when this event took place, individuals eventually, I mean, immediately jumped on this. They said, well, Paul changed his mind because he's following fleshly wisdom. The idea with that is that he can't be trusted to give you spiritual advice. He's not walking with the Lord. He's following the ways of man. Others said he was being careless with the will of God. So again, you know, we have this guy talking about what God's will is for you and what you should be doing, and he's pretty careless about it. Others said, well, it's because he's just making plans for himself. And so that's really what is guiding and directing him. Moyer Hubbard says this. He says, misunderstandings among God's people are, are often very difficult to untangle. Because one misunderstanding often leads to another. Once we start to question the integrity of others or distrust their words, the door is opened to all kinds of problems. And we hear stories of churches that go through times of great difficulty. That doesn't mean that there's, there are such a, there's such a thing as a church that's perfect. That doesn't exist. There's always going to be, in a sense, problems in a church because there's there's tension between people for a myriad of reasons, but it doesn't necessarily rise to a level where it's kind of a church-level problem. But here what, it, what the warning is, and I think why Paul is going through all of this, is because it's not really about him. He knows what it's doing to them. People are forming sides, and it, it appears to be it's all about him, when it's, it's not really, but that's what's going on, because he's kind of at the center of it, he doesn't want to be at the center of it, but it, but it is. And so he, he wants to guide and direct these individuals. So there is, in a sense, a defense of himself a little bit through all of this, but that's not his main concern. Paul is, is not running around trying to put out these little fires because someone has the audacity to be against him or speak bad of him. I, re, I, think, I don't think he really cares. He doesn't really care about that. But what he does care about is how... This, either accusing him of things, is going to blow back on the congregation. Not just in the sense that God's going to vindicate me, and if you come against me, God's going to get you. Not that. But the kinds of attitudes that are being formed. You see, as, as people form these attitudes towards Paul, you know, there's that bitterness. And the Bible talks about, you know, the root of bitterness. It, it can spread, and it can cause problems. It's not problems for Paul it becomes a problem for them and he doesn't want to see that there's already enough issues they have going on without this taking place so we want to make sure then that we recognize that even though Paul is stating the facts of what was going on and why these things happened and speaks a little bit about you know a little bit more detail that that they were doing this in earnestness and uh, forthrightness and for the Lord it is because he wants to make sure that they are able to deal with this issue in a right way and not allow it to fester and have a problem with them or within them. So no matter what Paul 
Uh, no matter what these accusers said about Paul, Paul is going to stand, stand firm because he has a clear conscience. What he wrote, what he said, what he lived were all in agreement. And besides, he had, as I said before, he had added, if the Lord permits. So we're going to talk about our conscience a little bit. So what you're not going to hear this morning is, we're not going to, I'm not going to go through a Tony Robbins kind of a thing. You know, where you pay more money and, you know, I give this speech where you all feel better about yourself. And then I'm going to go through this, this program of how you, can, how you can overcome and how you can be victorious. And, you know, you're going to leave here all energetic. And then by Tuesday, you'll need another conference to get, you know, going again. And so, you know, $235 a piece or whatever it is. And, and I think it's more because he's got a big name. I'm not saying anything bad about him. That's just how it goes. And that's how you make your money. Um, and then I'll, I'll write a book about what I just said, and then you can buy that too. Uh, and then we can, we'll sell CDs as well of what I said, and you can buy that too. Thumb drives as well, you can buy that too. Um, and then a special membership uh, into, my, into my program. So whenever you want to, you can kind of you know, click in, and I can tell you what I've just said. No, we're going we're to look at what the scriptures say, because again, Paul says that he strives to live his life with a clear conscience. How do we do that? Well, as a believer, to have a clear conscience, it means you will be serious about the will of God. It's just very basic. But you're serious about the will of God. It's not just some passing fad. It's not something you just give lip service to. It is, you know, Paul, when he made his plans, he didn't make his plans carelessly or haphazardly. He did seek the leading of the Lord. Sometimes Paul wasn't sure what God wanted him to do. But he knew how to wait on the Lord. So his motives were sincere, and he was seeking to please the Lord and not men. So you want to make sure that as you live your life, if you want to have a clear conscience before the Lord, then you, you take seriously this idea of the will of God. There are many things about the will of God in our lives we don't know. But there's also an enormous amount of information in the Bible about what God's will is for you. It is God's will that you pray. It is God's will that we gather as believers and worship. It is God's will that you share the gospel with others. It is God's will, and we can go on. There's an enormous number of things that the Bible makes very clear as to what we are to do. It is God's will that you forgive those who wrong you, regardless of what they've done. It is God's will that as much as possible, you live peaceably with everyone. It is God's will for you that you not complain habitually about anything. That's God's will for you. It is God's will for you, for you to determine that you will be a joyful believer. That's in the Bible. There's imperatives everywhere. And we need to take that seriously. Sometimes it seems strange that an individual says, I just don't know what God's will is for my life. And they usually mean in the context of some kind of a decision they have to make. I have said this only a few times. Only people that I know really well. But sometimes I say, well, it could be that God has not revealed his will for you regarding that because you're continually disobeying his revealed will in the Bible. And if you can't do what's clearly laid out in the Bible, why in the world should he tell you what he wants you to do with this? Because it's like you're looking for another suggestion to determine whether or not you will take that or not. And it's not about us determining if we're going to do this or do that. This is what God wants. When it comes to your marriage, if you're having trouble in your marriage, 
Remember that when it comes to trouble in your marriage, it is the will of God for you to work that out. It is the will of God for you to forgive. It is the will, for, a will of God for you to be faithful. We just do those things. It is the will of God to pray for your spouse. It is the will of God for you to live in light of what the Word of God says in every way, regardless of how they treat you and what they say to you. That is God's will for you in that troubled marriage that you have. It is God's will for you to trust in God that he will work it out, no matter how long it may take. It is God's will for you to live in understanding, especially if you're a man, to live in understanding with your wife, because it says it directly in Scripture. Live with your wife in understanding. So you, you need to pursue, how am I going to understand my wife? Don't follow the world and say, well, women can't be understood, because God does not give us commands that we, cannot, that we can't follow. However, I do know this, that sometimes to follow the commands of God requires us being empowered by God. So perhaps to understand your wife, you have to be empowered by God. All right, so you really need to be dependent upon him. But the idea is, is that what, that's the will of God for your life. In our minds, too often what, what we mean by that is, is our concern with the will of God is that God changes the will and the mind of our spouse. So we need to have a clear, clean conscience. It is important then that we take seriously the will of God. As a believer, to have a clear conscience means that you will live in light of the return of Jesus Christ. We don't always think about that. Look at verse 14. Paul says, Just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, that means when the Lord returns, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. What he's thinking about there, what he's saying is, is that when the Lord returns, you will speak well of us and we will speak well of you. The way that we relate to each other, the way that we conduct ourselves, when that day comes, we can speak well. So he is clearly living in light of this important event that's coming in the future. In the same way that we sometimes think about, you know, when the, Lord's, the Lord asked this question after giving some parables, he says, will the Lord find faith when he returns? Will he find that kind of faith when he returns? We want the Lord to find us being faithful when he returns. So I'm thinking about my life and the way I'm living in light of when he comes back. The idea here is a little more than that, and that is, so what would you be able to say on the day that the Lord calls us into account? We already, are, we already can relax in this sense. We know that we're not going to be judged for our sins. That does not mean that it's just going to be, you know, a nice little picnic on a bright sunny day when the Lord holds you to account for how you've lived your life. I don't know about you, but I remember being asked by my father to account for certain things when I had done nothing wrong. And I still had a knot in my throat. You know, I was innocent. It was rare, but I was innocent. And I still was feeling fearful. And it wasn't because my father was cruel to me. He wasn't. But he was exacting, and I knew that. So you and I need to think about the reality that the Lord's going to return, not in the sense of trying to set dates and, you know, what's happening in the Middle East and has the red heifer been born and all that kind of stuff. But the idea is, is that how am I going to account for my life before the Lord? Because it matters to him. And so I need to live in light of the return of Jesus Christ. 
You won't get that from Tony Robbins. He's not the only guy that does those kind of things, but you know, he's the most famous. As a believer, to have a clear conscience means, and this is pretty simple and straightforward, you glorify Jesus Christ. That means we speak well of him. We point to him. Verse 20 says, That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. A paraphrase would read this way. We have told everyone how faithful God is, giving glory to his name. So wherever we go, whether you're speaking to believers or non-believers, we want to make it clear that God is a major part of our life. It's not just words that we utter. God has, God has supplied this for me. And we're serious. We don't say it, you know, because sometimes we say it as a joke. You know, we say, oh, I can't believe you've been married for so long. Well, you know, God, he gave me a good one. <laughs> well, actually, he did. Maybe there was, you know, if you're a man, maybe there was no other woman on the planet who would put it with you except for the woman God gave you. So you should be grateful. We won't talk about women and how God gave you something, but anyway. The idea is the same. So yes, we say it sometimes as a joke and it's kind of funny, haha, and that's okay. But there's also a seriousness to that. A great seriousness to that. And so we need to recognize that and, and give the glory to God. You're grateful for your job. You're grateful for where you live. Remember that you know, I believe that we live in a great country. I do. I think that's because of God. Period. And I'm not saying that because I want to have a rally tomorrow about how our nation needs to return to God. Our nation does need to return to God, and they're not going to, just so you know. But I am truly grateful to God that I live where I live. Absolutely. I am grateful to God for my kids. I'm grateful to God for my grandchildren. I am grateful to God for that drink I get at Starbucks. It's so good. It's soothing. I feel like all is good with the world when I drink it. I do. I can live without it. I don't have to right now. Thank you, Lord. I'm serious. I think it's fantastic. I have pretty good health. My knees are feeling better because I had that surgery, which is available in America. It's wonderful. Let's get on the secret. I used to be bow-legged. Now I'm not. I'm a quarter inch taller. When I was in college, I was 6'2". I'm now 6'2 and a quarter. I don't know how many 60-year-old men you know who grew in their 60s, but I just did. Anyway, but the bottom line is, is that, that we are to um, glorify the Lord. And so we, don't, so we do so out of habit. And that's not a bad thing to have it as a habit. We just need to make sure that it doesn't become empty or meaningless. And it doesn't have to be just because it's a habit. But we do want to make sure we do that. We want to be the individual where, where some, maybe some individual comes along and says, you know, you speak of the Lord so often, it's as if he's real. Well, that's what you want the non-believer to begin to think. That either God really is real or you're whacked out of your mind. And it's okay. We want to have that clear conscience. For a believer to have a clear conscience means that you will be on, and I don't know any other way to say this, but you'll be on good terms with the, with the Spirit of God. So let me look at verses um, 21 and following through 24. It says this. He says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call on God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. So when he says, but I call God to witness against me, in other words, he's basically saying, 
I'm calling on the Spirit of God to bear witness whether I'm telling you the truth or not. So if I'm telling you something's false, I want the Holy Spirit to, to witness against me if, if this is not true. I, it was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. So we know theologically, if you've ever done a study on the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is God's guarantee given to us that he is dependable and that he will accomplish all that he has promised you. Paul was careful to live his life, to not grieve the Holy Spirit because the Spirit was not convicting him of this incident and he knew that his motives were pure and his conscience was clear. Remember, the, the Bible teaches us that all Christians have been anointed by the Spirit. Let's talk about it in 1 John, where in 1 John, as John writes about the Gnostics and the damage they've done to others, there are certain phrases that John uses uh, purposely because he knows what the Gnostics have said. So part of the teaching of the Gnostics is they have secret knowledge of God. You don't. You need to come to them, and, and they'll kind of give you the lowdown. You know, they're the ones in prominence. So John just goes ahead and reminds him, oh, by the way, everyone's been anointed by God. If everyone, everyone who's a believer has been anointed by the Spirit of God. In the Old Testament, the only persons who were anointed by God were prophets and priests and kings. We know that there is the dwelling of the Spirit on them, usually temporarily. They would accomplish whatever God would want them to accomplish, and then the Spirit would leave. That's why the day of Pentecost was such a unique day, because the Holy Spirit came upon all men and women. And what we know as we read through the New Testament is that was the beginning when the Spirit of God came to live permanently in the life of a believer. That was unknown before. People would, in a sense, only dream about that because only certain ones would have that. Of course, their anointing in the Old Testament was to equip them for service, and that is one of the main purposes of God anointing us. As we yield to the Spirit of God, he enables us to serve God and to live godly lives. He gives us special discernment that we need to serve God acceptably. When I say that he gives us special discernment, that's not necessarily you running around and looking at the lives of others. The idea that I mean there is namely that you have discernment as to what you should be doing and what is right and what is wrong and how you should be serving God. In verse 20 of 1 John chapter 2, he says, But you, as John writes to these believers, have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. Verse 27, But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And so that would have been a great encouragement to those believers who were believing that they were somehow, in a sense, second class or not quite in tune with God because they weren't like those who had secret knowledge. He just erases that line. It says that we all have this anointing. The Spirit also seals us, as he says. In fact, in Ephesians 1.13, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The idea of that sealing was this idea that, that, that no one has power or the authority to break the seal of God. The only way the seal of God can be broken is if someone else comes along or some entity comes along that has greater power than God because he's the one that stands behind this and that doesn't exist. So this sealing gives to us this great sense of, of permanent belonging to God. I permanently belong to him because I've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. 
If you are a believer, you've been permanently sealed by the Holy Spirit. You belong to God. So the witness of the Spirit within guarantees that we are authentic children of God. Because you being a child of God is not based on your performance. It's not based on if you're able to obey enough of the commands of God or more of the commands of God than you're used to. We strive to live in obedience, absolutely. There's no contradiction there. But I never, at the end of the day, have to wonder about my position because I didn't do enough good. I never have to worry about that. Because God is gracious and kind. You can sleep in absolute peace. In the same way that not all children do this, as we know, but many children, where they know that they are loved and accepted in their home, which has got really a lot less to do with how many times the parents say, I love you. It has to do with the tone of the home. When there's, when there's peace and stability between mom and dad, between their relationship, because that's the home. So if there's peace there and stability there in that home, and there's not all this upheaval, that gives to their children automatically a great sense of security. And that is one of the primary reasons why they are able to lay their head down at night and go to sleep within a matter of minutes. It's because of that. They have that. There are plenty of kids, tons of kids, that their home is always in an upheaval. And they have to learn how to fall asleep, in a sense. There's a struggle to fall asleep. They, don't, they, they many times don't go into a deep sleep. There's always, there's always trouble. It's always troubling on them. And, and so they're, they're, they're not able to get everything they should even get out of sleep. It's not for every single individual, but generally speaking, that is true. So for you and I as believers, we are in essence able to sleep at peace at night because we know we belong to God. We don't have to fret and worry. Finally, the Holy Spirit, again, because of his presence in our lives, enables us to serve others. Again, Paul says in verse 24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. So the Apostle Paul words this this way on purpose. He's not saying that you work for us. He who has, who has authority. Remember, Paul's an apostle. What he says goes in whatever church he walks into. He's the boss in that sense. You know, the apostles were laying the foundation for the church. And Paul says, yeah, we work with you. He wasn't just doing that as a, as a way, you know, to kind of get along with people and make friends and influence people. He was saying that because that's what he truly believed. That's what he wanted to accomplish. That's what he wanted to do. He said, we work with you. In the Amplified, it says, not that we have dominion over you and lord over your faith, but rather we work with you as fellow laborers to promote your joy. For in your faith, in your strong welcome conviction and belief that Jesus is the Messiah, through whom we obtain eternal salvation in the kingdom of God, you stand firm. That was, that was what Paul was meaning when he talked to them about working with them in the faith. So Paul, and again, we, especially when we are serving in any kind of leadership position, whether you are in a leadership position officially or unofficially, we work with others. We are never spiritual dictators who tell others what to do. We are servants who seek to help others grow. So if I was to tell you what to do as a believer, 
I have the right and responsibility to tell you what to do as I am repeating what it says in Scripture. So when I tell you that, it is, that you are commanded to read the Word of God, that doesn't come from Bob. That comes from God. There was this, you know, there's been a lot of different fads through the years in America, all kinds of weird things. And there was one that was going around in the, I think it was the 80s and 90s. It seemed to be primarily uh, in the California area. It wasn't limited there, but it was, it was uh, called um, Shepherding Theology. And basically what, what, what they meant by that was that the pastor had all power over the lives of the members of the, all power. So that would mean then that before Savannah and uh, Napoleon got married, they don't talk to their parents, they talk to me to get my permission. And I would tell them yes or no. But not just that. When they wanted to buy their home, they would ask me. I'm their shepherd. I would tell them if they could or could not. They want to get a new refrigerator or a used one. Got to come talk to me. Now, I don't know where that ended as far as, you know, if there was a price point on all of that. But that was going around, and there were, there were churches that were falling into that. Thank goodness it didn't last long. I'm sure it ruined a lot of lives. Uh, but that's, you know, that's cultic, and it's not in Scripture. So this idea, then, once again, of working together is really important. And, and so there are no spiritual dictators in the church. Again, that's why Paul said before to imitate him. He didn't say follow him. He said imitate him. There's a distinction, a, a distinction there for a reason. The false teachers who invaded the Corinthian church, they were guilty of being dictators. You know, they were turning the hearts of the people away from Paul. Paul had sacrificed a great deal for them. And so Paul was trying to point out that difference. Remember that the spirit is God's guarantee or earnest, kind of like a down payment guarantee, a security payment, that one day we will be with him in heaven and we will possess glorified bodies as we talked about when we were looking at 1 Corinthians 15. Because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, Paul was able to have a clear conscience in face of misunderstandings with love and patience. So he had a clear conscience. Why? Because all those things I just outlined is how he was living. And so he, there was no, he had no alternative agenda, no hidden agenda. He wasn't trying to gather a group that was going to say yay for Paul. He wasn't trying to do any of those things at all. You see, if you and I live to please people, misunderstandings with people are going to depress you. They're going to cause you to have a lot of worry. But if you live to please God, you'll be able to face misunderstandings in your marriage, in relationships with people at work and in the church. You'll be able to face conflict and tension with faith and courage because you have a clear conscience. That's why sometimes when, when people try to resolve conflicts, the very first thing that sometimes happens, at least among Christians, is one or both parties need to confess their sin because they don't have a clear conscience. And that's a great thing. But it's better to have a clear conscience from the beginning, to go in with a clear conscience. So perhaps we should give that a little bit more thought about really striving as Christians to live with a clear conscience. Not a conscience that is dictated or that is formed by only my experience, and the experience of my family and my parents or whoever my mentors happen to be. But a conscience that is formed by the word of God and the spirit of God. And if I strive to live that way, then my life will be pleasing to the Lord. 
And I, and I won't have to go looking, really, I think, for courage in my life as a Christian. I won't have to be concerned about how maybe I might need to manipulate a situation to make people do or think what I want them to think. Just let all that go. I'm free from all of that. I am free to trust in the Lord. And that's great, great freedom. As you know, we're going to share in a few moments having communion together. If you don't have these, by the way, you can quietly get up and go get these. They're in the back. But when you and I gather together to have communion, it is important that you have a clear conscience. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to be living your life perfectly, because no Christian lives their life perfectly. But we do want to have a clear conscience in that you're not holding on to sin. A clear conscience in that there's not sin in your life that you refuse to deal with. If you are dealing with things, that you're, you're on the right path. If you think somehow that partaking of communion is going to give you bonus points with God, it doesn't work that way. You, you, God's not going to allow you to ignore the sin in your life and give you bonus points because you performed a ritual in church. And it is a ritual. A ritual doesn't have to be bad. In fact, it's not. It's, it's marvelous. It reminds us of the sacrifice that Christ made. Not just that he made it. What we need to remember is what kind of sacrifice that was. It, he endured a great deal of pain and suffering. He wasn't playing a part in the movie. Remember, he was innocent of everything. They, they treated him like he was scum. Yes, we know that God placed on him our sin and treated him as if he had done the things that we had done. But as God was punishing Christ, part of that whole picture were these non-believers who were basically just filth who treated him poorly as well. You and I know that as human beings that if somebody good who intends or means well mistreats us, it's easy to put up with that and forgive them. But when there's someone who comes along that you know is filth, someone that you know does things that you would never do, and they treat you unjustly, now you feel anger. Now you want to lash out. How dare this clown treat me this way? And it can, it can, it can rise up inside of you. you. You may not always do anything because you may not be able to, but if you could, you would. Jesus endured all of that for us. And we, need, and we need to be reminded of that. And that's what this is for. Remember that if you are, both as a believer or a non-believer, we do not partake of communion to get our sins forgiven. The only ones who partake of communion are those who've had their sins forgiven in Christ. We are celebrating that our sins are forgiven. But we don't do this to get forgiven. Taking communion is not, is not a step to help you get a step closer to heaven. It, it doesn't do that for us. God is not in heaven thinking, wow, you know, I wasn't going to let so-and-so in, but I think they're a step closer. They just took communion. God's, God doesn't do that. This is merely symbolic of a very profound event that has incredible meaning and benefit to those of us who believe in Christ. 
So for the non-believer, there's, there's nothing here for them. And if you are unsure of your relationship with Christ, then I would urge you to not partake. It does you no good, except perhaps bring upon you the wrath of God because you're mocking God. And for the believer, if you think somehow, again, that this is going to cause your sins to be more forgivable or something like that, you're mocking God because you are misunderstanding maybe intentionally what Christ has accomplished for us. But again, I want you also to be comforted to know that you don't have to have everything in your life taken care of as a Christian because we're all in the midst of dealing with sin in our lives. I will say that if, if there is conflict with you and another person and there's been no real attempt by you to resolve that conflict, it may be best that you don't partake of communion. Because God does not want us to have the attitude of just letting things go. He wants us to be proactive. Not to prove that you're right, but to salvage that relationship. If, if, I, if there's conflict with me and Steve over whatever, and we're both convinced that we're right, and the other person is wrong, and that tension still exists, and we've made no effort to try to resolve that, I think I'm mocking God when I partake of communion. I'm, I'm acting as if that sin somehow is just not a big deal. And it matters to God how I treat him and what I think about him. And so if that is true for you, then I would not partake. It is important that as believers that we don't judge others around us who aren't partaking because you don't know why they're not taking at the same time, I would say that if you've noticed an individual who hasn't partaken of communion two or three times, you should begin praying for them because something's going on in their life. So this is to be, in that sense, very interactive. We are to be aware of what's going on in each other's lives and to, and to take the attitude of compassion towards each other, to not be legalistic but to, and seek to honor God in all that we do. And so if you're unfamiliar with how we do communion, what we do is we take the elements together as one. So I'm, I'm going to pray in a moment and ask the Lord to bless the bread, which does represent the body of Jesus Christ. It was a body that, was, that felt enormous pain, a body, again, that was innocent of all sin or wrongdoing, that was offered up willingly for us. Again, there's no magic in the partaking of the element, it doesn't turn into the body of Christ. It just reminds us of what Christ has done. And then after I, after I pray, then we take it together as one body, as one family, as we remember Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Father, as we come before you this morning, it is our desire, Father, to honor you in every way. And Father, we are privileged, as well as it being our duty, to partake together of the Lord's table. That for a few moments to intentionally remember, specifically, the events of the day that Christ gave his life for us. To think about the beatings that he took, the pain that he suffered before and while he was on the cross. It is difficult for us to truly imagine all that he had to endure that day. But we do know that it was more than what any man could ever bear. 
We are aware, Lord, that what he dealt with that day is what we deserve in every way. And so we are so grateful that Christ was our substitute that day and took our place on the cross. And so, Father, we come to you with hearts that are thankful and grateful for your salvation and for what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. We ask your blessing on the bread that we share and on each one who partakes. We do so, Father, remembering you, and we do so with thankfulness. In Christ's name, amen.